and and I, I'm assuming she's become a lot more proficient with the manufacture or the um, the maintenance upkeep of the 1050s and and, uh, and oh yeah kind of stuff yeah uh, no, because totally. because you like to sabotage the machines on her right like yeah, when you're leaving was... for a match and you don't want her to reload any then you totally sabotage the machine. And here we are with another episode of Open Action with John McLean, brought to you by Arms Corps Precision. This guest, I I know very well, and you probably know fairly well if you're in the competition world. If you're in just the general firearms world, maybe his name's uh, his name may elude you a little bit. However, this is someone you should absolutely, positively follow, like, watch his videos. I, just because he's not just a good shooter, okay, he's a great shooter, uh, but he's also just a good person in general. Absolutely love this guy to death, and he has. Let's let's talk a little bit about who he is. As far as he's got twenty eight plus national or world titles and championships, that includes an IDPA, USPSA, IPSC, Steel Challenge, and recently his win at Three Gun Nationals. And he shoots for Canic and Century Arms. Today's guest is Nils Johansson Tinsenbergville. Nils Jonasson. <laughs> What's going on, John? Good to be here. How was that for an intro, buddy? I like it. I like it. I know. I know how how much you hate being on camera and having to talk to people in general. So <laughs> I know it's just it's just the worst, right? <laughs> oh, absolutely. So, all right. Well, Nils, obviously, I know you very well. Uh, so, you know. There's a lot of stuff we could talk about, but I don't want to necessarily have this become a competition podcast because I'm sure you've been on plenty of those and you always get asked the same questions. So for this per for for this episode, I just kind of wanted to chat a little bit about uh, sharing you with the general population and the public out there. So as far as Nils Jonasson goes, um, let's just kind of start with a brief history of how you became involved in the firearms world. Like, obviously, we don't all start with guns in our hands so at some point someone had to introduce you to shooting and then from there we either decide to run with it or not so tell everyone a little bit about where you come from and how your introduction to firearms began i mean i i may have been running around the house as a two and three year old with an l shaped like a gun and you know shooting stuff for make-believe when i was a little kid but uh no so my name is nils jonason and i started shooting fairly young like my dad brought me out to the range and i shot a bolt action 22 long rifle when i was like six or seven years old but it wasn't until i was 12 when i started kind of watching him shoot local matches and coming out and thinking you know what i could do this too and it was when i was 12 years old that i shot my first actual competition so i've been doing it for a long long time that was back in 2001 fast forward 23 years and uh yeah i uh, work full-time for canic i travel around the country and the world i shoot guns and i talk about guns and i design guns so i kind of live in the dream how old did that make you feel having to say that 23 years ago is when you started shooting <laughs> you know it's it's okay uh i've gone through a bunch of phases in my shooting career and just kind of my life in general and i've got a lot of responsibilities I didn't have way back then, and I'm grateful for some of them, and some others are a pain in the butt. 
So it, it's just a, another part of life. Man, ain't that the truth? So, all right. Now you said you so you started when you were twelve. What what is the first gun that you strapped on and shot a competition with? So the first pistol I ever shot in competition was a Series seventy Colt Gold Cup forty five, um, with seven round magazines. Oof. And so were you guys load? I mean, because let's be honest, I'm spoiled. I don't know the history of reloading and stuff. Were you guys reloading your own ammunition at that point? Or were at you just that point, we were. Available? Yeah. Okay. No, we. my dad and I loaded on a single-stage rock chucker, um, which is a just a single-stage press that basically involves you pulling a handle and then pulling the handle again and then pulling the handle again and then pulling the handle again and then pulling the handle again. And that gives you one cartridge. <laughs> and you do that all over again. So we, well, we, yeah, up, that's the... we upgraded to a, a Dylan 550 within the first year, year and a half. And that was the best thing we ever did. <laughs> yeah, because I mean, in reality, when you're talking about reloading machines, like the when you're talking about the new 550s, 650s, 1050s, and all that kind of stuff, in reality, it's the same idea of having to pull the, pull the handle six or seven times to get one round. The difference is you're able to get seven or eight bullets working simultaneously to up the production versus seven times for one and then right. and go on so yeah now that was a that was a huge improvement for us and and what really sparked that change was there was a kind of a regional match that's close to us called the western states single stack championship and i know you shot this match but way back then my dad and i both shot this with 45s and we loaded over the course of i think two weeks a thousand rounds to prepare for this match. So we had enough for the competition itself and extras for reshoots or, you know, at the time I wasn't very good. So my misses. So long story short, we loaded a thousand rounds in about two weeks and Oof. yeah, we actually worked our butts off to get everything resized, deprimed, processed. Um, we didn't even have like a, a powder funnel thing. Like we'd scoop it out and then, like it was a horrible experience and we loaded a thousand rounds in a couple weeks. And I think that next month we bought the Dylan. Well, a horrible experience, but it also, I think, you know, it's important to know when you, when you have crap experiences like that in life, a lot of times that's what creates a new appreciation for when you do and are able to make that next upgrade. You know, imagine, imagine having to ride horseback everywhere you went. And then all of a sudden one day you got a car. You're like, oh my gosh, so much better. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> no, you're so. totally right. And I mean, it's definitely some bonding time with my dad, I guess. Uh, so you could look at it from that perspective. Um, but yeah, it definitely makes me appreciate what I've got now. I load on 1050s, which is a, like a seven stage progressive automatic reloader, essentially. And I remember the days when I loaded one at a time. So I can appreciate that a lot more now having done it than maybe some other people. And now you, you talked about at the beginning, how you've got some more um, responsibilities and stuff. It's not just you that's burning through powder and primers anymore uh, in your household. You've been, you've been pairing that yeah. partnership up with, with the Mrs. Now Jessica Jonason for quite a few years now. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so she shoots mostly open division with a 38 super comp pistol. 
And uh, yeah, she chews through primers and powder and I have to buy Starline 38 Supercomp cases. And yeah, it's not cheap. Now, how is she as far as the reloading world goes? Like, does she, I'm, I'm going to assume that she's as involved with the process as you, such as knowing what powder she prefers and what kind of bullet weights and, and how she wants her bullets to be set up. But I could also be wrong in that maybe you just kind of told her, here's what we're going to do. And here's why we're going to do it. So how does that kind of go? Does Jessica get like as in-depth about reloading as most people that I know do where they, they say, oh, I'm going to use this powder or use this powder or use this powder and stay away from these and da-da-da-da? Or, or how's that go? Uh, she is like that in a way, but I've spent a lot of time doing some R&D in that world. So she takes a lot of my advice as gospel. Uh, but there will be the occasion where she'll question the why to it and I need to explain and if I don't do a good enough job, we might change powders or primers or, you know, overall length, depending on what she thinks is right. But no, for the most part, she knows what's going on. She has her preferences, but she also understands that, you know, maybe a Vitavori N3 and 3.8 powder, while it might technically be cleaner and give a little bit more gas and less felt recoil, it's also twice the price of CFE pistol, which is what she currently loads. So little things like that, that maybe it's uh, an advantage, but in the grand scheme of things, the cost difference just isn't worth it. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I'm assuming she's become a lot more proficient with the or the, um, the maintenance upkeep of the 1050s and, and, uh, and oh, yeah. Kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, uh, because, totally. <laughs> because you like to sabotage the machines on her. Right? Like yeah, when you're leaving was... for a match and you don't want her to reload any, then you totally sabotage the machine. Yeah, we had a, I don't want to say an altercation, but uh, a, a discussion because she was planning on loading some ammunition while I was out of town for a match years ago. Can't even remember what year it was. You might better than me. Um, uh, it was a while ago, for and, sure. And so I go off to this match, I think it was in Texas, and she goes to reload her ammo and something's miscalibrated with the 1050. Like I think the, the arm on the slide mechanism uh, slid up the shaft a little bit so it wasn't actuating the primer slide correctly on the 1050. If you know what I'm, the machine I'm talking about, you have an idea of what's going on. Um, she immediately came to the conclusion that I didn't trust her with the reloader, so I intentionally sabotaged the machine so she couldn't reload her ammo while I was out of town. And her solution to that was to go to Dillon, which is a 30, well, at the time it was like a 15, 20 minute drive from our house. And she had our friend Brian Muggy give her a handful of broken 1050 parts. That's all she wanted. And she took a picture of like this pile of parts on my reloading room bench. And she's like, babe, Something was wrong with the 1050, and I tried to take it apart, and all this happened. Like, what do I do? <laughs> Trying to make me freak out. Uh, which I did for, like, five seconds, and then I realized what she was doing. But, uh, yeah, to this day, she's still convinced that I sabotaged my 1050, because we weren't married at the time. Sabotaged my 1050, so she couldn't reload ammo because I didn't trust her. Which, for the record, is 100% not true. <laughs> Yeah. Well, so there there is an, another uh, side quest to this story, and that's the fact that we're she not going to go into me. the side. We're not going to go into the side quest. That's that's too so, deep. 
<laughs> so she called me and asked me what I thought, and I said, well, I mean, maybe, possibly, I don't know. I can't give. But, yes, it, it was totally a scheme to say, you know what you should do is go find a bunch of broken parts and send him a picture of it and uh, and suggest that maybe you tried to fix something and it all, you know, have like a, a Leslie Nope or a, a Parks and Rec moment of like, Nils, I tried to make co- I'm trying to make ramen in the coffee pot and I broke everything. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> So yeah, now no, I'm, um, so I'm trying to think. I think that was the year I shot the Infinity Open back to back in limited and open divisions and got disqualified. That uh, that might have been. I'm pretty sure that was the year. Might have been the year, but it wasn't the match you were at, for sure. I I can't remember what match you were at, but yeah, I was. It was quite an interesting weekend. Yes, there is more to that story, but we'll just save that for our own personal enjoyment because of yeah, what happened. But um, okay, so so at this point now, you and Jessica now Jessica wasn't always a shooter. You kind of turned her into one with your so celebrity when, status. When we met, I was actually working at an indoor shooting range, um, and she came in. She needed to get some equipment for some Canadian friends of hers from out of town that were competitive shooters. But she had current she was currently and had been a member of our shooting range and she had shot, you know, well before I met her. So I didn't inter- introduce her to firearms, I didn't introduce her to shooting, but I'm definitely the one that brought her into kind of the competition world and got her started with that. And ever since then, it's just been like a whirlwind of information and and training and practice. Because I I got I had the pleasure of meeting Jessica fer- fairly early on in your guys' relationship, and I've been able to watch her kind of progress as we go. Now, tell me, um, what is it like trying to teach someone <laughs> that you you have such a close relationship with? It's tough. Uh, as I'm sure you know, it's really difficult to sometimes convey information to someone you love, (laughs) especially when, man, yeah, it's very difficult. (laughs) It is. I, I, I don't, I don't recommend it. And if anyone knows how to properly do that with their significant other, I'd really like that information and suggestions from that person because I haven't found a way short of just accepting that we're not going to necessarily agree with everything and she's not going to blindly do what I tell her to do um, and she's going to want reasons why, which is great, but sometimes I feel like I don't need to explain myself on every little detail and that's just not her personality. And I think that's kind of where I fall off or we fall off the rails is she wants clarification. And my clarification is because that's the best way, <laughs> which isn't, I understand. That's almost, that's almost as bad as because I said so. Right. Um, <laughs> right. It, in my case, to be fair, because it's the best way or because I said so, 99% of the time is correct. But uh, when you're talking to your wife, that's not always the right answer. See, and so in, in my history of, of training people that are close to me, it's the, the disconnect, typically, but what I've found is that it's um, you can tell them something and it becomes a criticism instead of like a, a suggestion or a tech or, or 
you know tip or whatever um so yeah i've tried to teach like my mom shooting and stuff and it's like i could say something six or seven times and it becomes like well why why are you chewing me out about that and then a complete stranger i could go walk over and say hey can you go over her and tell her that she needs to do this they'll walk over and tell her and she'll be like oh okay yeah that makes sense i'm like i literally said that six times in a row but you know right. so and it's, and it's just because that relationship dynamic is there but i think um, i think that's part of it another i think facet of this scenario is when it's someone we really really care about we almost try extra hard to you know make sure they get it and i don't think that's the best way for a lot of people to learn stuff I think the most valuable information you learn is when you're put in a position to learn something on your own rather than being spoon fed information and like a you know, ABC XYZ way to do something exactly. You're better to put someone in a position where they can learn the information on their own, not by themselves, but kind of like a, as a guided, a guided training where they come out learning something based off of the information you told them, not just doing what you told them to do. And I think that's kind of where we fall off the rails is we just tell them what to do and we forget that part of, you know, kind of self-exploration or self-learning. Yeah, you know what, actually that, yes. So you're absolutely right, absolutely. The, the idea of reading something in a book might give you the knowledge, but it doesn't give you the experience such as going out in the field and actually trying it. And that was something like, as an EMT was, I, you could you could read how to treat a diabetic patient all day long but until you actually got into the field and experienced a diabetic patient and had to learn how to assess and problem solve what the issue was and then how to correct it and stuff it was really the only way you could feel comfortable with that so that that you're absolutely right i think that does make sense and that's that's just good life advice see we've we've turned in from a a firearms podcast to a life <laughs> advancing podcast here with Nils Jonasson, who to thunk, right? So, um, all right. Now, obviously, you shoot a lot, and you know a lot of people through through my experience. It's funny because it's when you when you learn when you have a passion for something and you really enjoy doing it, and you you make it a goal to kind of make it your career. Eventually, it becomes a career, and sometimes that career then all of a sudden becomes not as it's it's harder to stay as motivated as you were when you were just kind of starting out, right? Um, so for me, I always try and find that there's a good way to to renew that flame and that desire to to work and and improve and all that kind of stuff is to find something else to just give you time off for a bit. Now the problem is with you being in Phoenix, like you can shoot year around you've got the weather ability here now that I'm in Missouri, like sometimes when there's seven inches of snow on the ground, I could go out and shoot, but I'd be miserable doing it. Um, is there I'll, anything? I'll tell you what, that's the one thing I hate more than anything is shooting in the cold. Uh, it's just awful. Uh, it is. And like being, being hot and shooting is it's miserable too, but you can at least feel the gun. You can feel your magazines. You can grip things and, and all that. It's just sweatier. Right. But yeah, in the cold, you're like, fingers are numb and, and oh, yeah, it, it can be absolutely miserable for sure. Uh, so the, my question to you, and this is something actually I, I really don't know a good answer to uh, myself, would be what the hell do you do for fun that doesn't involve shooting? 
Well, you probably already know what I'm going to say to this. And uh, the honest answer is I shoot different stuff. (laughs) (laughs) So my job revolves around Canic Firearms. And I travel a lot and I shoot a lot of major matches. And every once in a while there will be a lull where either there are no major matches for a couple of week period or maybe a month and a half period. Or there's a major match outside of the pistol world that I can gear up for. And doing stuff like that, 3-Gun is actually a perfect example. Doing stuff like 3-Gun or 2-Gun or now PCC, getting ready for PCC Nationals, is so much different than what I do for quote-unquote work with Canik that it's a little bit of a reset in that way for me also. So that's what I've started doing and I have done kind of subconsciously over the years but you're absolutely right when you shoot a lot it uh it can get tedious sometimes that's true Mm -hmm. but now not to say though like just to understand nils is not just entirely a machine that only shoots guns because i know for a fact that uh you and i both upset a very good friend of ours i don't know upset is being usually worded here but we did upset a friend of ours jared clark who is a, a good friend of ours with Voodoo Tactical, mm-hmm. who's our, our bag and, and shooting mat sponsor and all kind of stuff. Because we were all in Phoenix shooting maybe Area 2 or something like that, and we wanted to do something that night. And so he was like, oh, let's go to Top Golf." And he's a golfer. He's an avid golfer. Right. And he thought for a moment maybe he had something that he could do better than us, but he didn't realize that I had been a youth competitive golfer for a brief stint in my life. And you just know how to whack a ball. <laughs> so yeah, I remember he, we went up uh, hit, and started whacking some, balls. I hit some golf balls back when I was, you know, 13 and 14. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and you still hit some dingers. So I remember when, when he watched you go up and you smacked the crap out of a ball straight as an arrow right down the middle of the, the top golf drive. He was like, what the hell can you guys not do? Like, seriously? I thought this was supposed to be my game, and you guys just show up and take it away from me. So now – Recently, and I don't know, like, I know Top Golf was an experience for you, but was the last time that you went out golfing, I know you went out and played 18 holes, was that like the first time you actually properly played a round of golf? Or that was my first around? full round of golf, yes. Uh, up to that point, my only experience had been going to a driving range, going to Top Golf, or sneaking onto a fairway and shooting balls really quick in between uh, sets or whatever they call the groups of people. <laughs> Got okay, so, so um, tell everybody what your experience was that because like I find you know a lot of people say they don't want to they don't want to try golf because they think they could get addicted to it and I can see it because I I do play golf here and now and I can see where the the fun of it is but how was your experience with golf? Uh, my experience was very frustrating, John. Um, <laughs> I did make a point to finish all 18 holes. Um, I did not play the worst of our group. And I shot a couple of amazing shots that after I hit them, I think to myself, what the hell was different about that shot than all of my <laughs> other ones, right? <laughs> so it's, it's one of those things that I can go do. And again, I haven't played a round of golf since. That was a couple of years ago. Um, it, it was something I was able to do where 
I could, in my mind, do everything that I'm, my brain thinks I'm supposed to do, and nothing works correctly. And then out of the blue, seemingly doing the same thing up here, it, it works perfect, the ball goes straight, or it curves the way I want it to, and it's perfect. And in those moments, you're like, man, golf is amazing. Every other time in golf, you're like, mm, F this shit. <laughs> so no, uh, I don't recommend people play golf uh, because <laughs> one, it's a perfectly horrible use of a rifle range. Like how many yards is a decent 18-hole course? It's a big old yep. rifle range. Two, it's one of the most frustrating things that I've done is play an entire round of golf. So yeah, I don't know if I would recommend anyone pick that up. Now, see, I feel like your experience with golf and, is... And I paid $125 for a round, an 18-hole round, in the middle of summer. <laughs> so not only was the weather terrible, it was expensive, and we were out there for hours. How much drinking did you do while you are on the range? Or on, 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 the golf, on the golf course? Not enough. Maybe that was why the experience. If, if you can remember your first experience, it means you didn't drink enough. <laughs> Possibly. Yeah, it, it was frustrating. Um, we went out with uh, Jessica's family. So they came in from out of town. So her her dad and her stepmom and her aunt, and we all played a round of golf with some other friends. And we had a really good time. But I don't know, that, especially with my other time commitments with you know all my shooting I don't think I could get good enough to the point where I would enjoy shooting or where I would involve golfing, enjoy golfing. Man, I can't even talk. I'm so mad about golf. <laughs> well, I, I think the, see the fun side to that story is hearing you explain your experience with golf means that, you know, the majority of our experiences as it goes to shooting. Because I feel like I do the same thing over and over, and sometimes I hit the steel, and other times I do a standing reload after four makeup shots like I did at Area 3 recently. So it's good to know that you're you're human in some aspects. It's just shooting's not one of them. You're a goddamn machine. No, I mean, I mess up in shooting all the time. It's just generally I'm able to conceal those mistakes with, you know, some positive attributes as well. Um, if things really fall off the rails for me, People will know, but it's something I've kind of kept under control and have learned to mitigate over the years. But you're right. I've, my golf is a lot of other people's shooting. I understand that. <laughs> now, uh, let, let's talk about Multigun Nationals for a moment, because like you said, it's it was a it's kind of a branch off of what is typical for you. Like your specialty is definitely the handgun for sure. Right. Um, how much training or practice did you did before you shot multi-gun nationals? Just to make uh, everyone else feel really bad. So I'm not going to lie. I'm going to be honest here. Uh, I went out to the range twice with the rifle because I had to confirm my zero because I had to sh change ammunition because the 55 grain wolf gold that I had used for years past in multi-gun got discontinued by the company. So I couldn't find any more ammunition. So I switched over to PMC bronze, 55 grain, round nose, book tail, whatever it is. The PMC bronze, uh, 55 grain, 223 ammo. 
So I had to confirm my zero for that. So I went up to the range twice to confirm zero and chronograph my rifle. And then I went out twice with the shotgun and practiced six quad loads. <laughs> and all I was doing with the shotgun was function firing it, making sure everything was good from eight months ago, from which was the last multi-gun match that I had shot. And that is amazing and frustrating because I went out and trained quite a bit. <laughs> and my, well, and I'll say this, my, my gear just ended up giving me a headache. Granted, it was also self-induced uh, self because, you know, apparently I, di I didn't think about the fact that my shotgun magazines could rust on the inside. I don't think and... anyone thinks about that. It's a super strange thing, John. Yeah, apparently. Uh, except that every other person that I talked to and showed them, they go, "Oh yeah, you should definitely oil the inside of those." <laughs> so I was watching some of uh, some of the open shotgunner shoot, and they mostly use box-fed magazines, whether it's the like the Rock Island VR80 or some kind of AK, you know, abomination that takes big old 15, 20, 25 round stick magazines or a drum or whatever. And those people, no joke, are putting their ammunition, their their shells, in ice chests to keep them cool, so the plastic doesn't deform. So when it actually goes in the magazine, it feeds out of the magazine, and everything, hopefully, works perfectly. Ugh, open shotguns, I just don't understand. I really don't. Yeah, it was it was an interesting experience because that was my first time ever shooting open multi gun, and. There was just like, I mean, already right off the bat, you're, you're using a lot of gear in multi-gun. And then you throw open in it, and all of a sudden now you've got bipods, you've got magazines, you've got pouches for those magazines, or some way you have to put them and mount them on your body and stuff like that. And I was just like, dude, this multi-gun is already a lot, and shooting open is even more a lot. So I, I really don't know, like... Now, granted, maybe maybe I also am a little jaded from from the experience because having the equipment malfunctions on the the day that I did, um, kind of ruined the match for me. But I I can't decide whether or not I would rather shoot tack or open and multi gun if it came down to it again. Like I I feel like I would give open another try just to make sure that my you know with my gear all running how it ran. But um, I think what, I would definitely shoot a rifle pistol two gun division at multi-gun nationals if they had it now what about modified how how does that division look to you as far as the idea so, of being able to put a red dot on your shotgun as far as i understand the only difference between tactical division and modified division is it gave you the ability to put a red dot on your pistol mounted on the slide it gave you the ability to start with 12 rounds in your gun i believe so you started with higher round capacity for your shotgun and you could put a red dot on your shotgun. And mm -hmm. you could run bipods on your rifle, I believe. Yeah, I'm pretty sure those are the main differences between TAC and modified. So there is a difference, right? So mm -hmm. I would say modified has a, an advantage technically over tactical division from an equipment standpoint. Um, it had a really good attendance at USPSA Multigun Nationals. So from that perspective, I think it's great. Um, I am more of an iron sight pistol shooter. Like that's my preference. That's what I've done for years and years. 
and like that's more than likely what I'll continue to shoot for multi-gun. So between the so two, even after that. all this time, even after all this time that you've spent behind a carry optics pistol with a red dot, um, you still prefer going iron sights than with a red dot. I've done it for over 20 years. Like that's, you know, iron sight shooting is my comfort zone. Now that said, over the last year and a half, two years, I've gotten to the point with the carry optics gun and the red dot where I understand how to use it better. But that in turn has made the transition back to irons more difficult for me as time goes on. So it's kind of a kind of a trade-off that I've I've had to had to undergo. But yes, I still prefer iron sights. If I had to choose one, that's what I would choose. See, and I, I'm I'm with you. Like when I shoot a red dot, yes, it's 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 kind of nice having a little bit more um, precision of knowing where your shot's gonna go. But I just I'm so much slower, and I'm like you said, like I'm not comfortable with it. So I like I kind of like confirm, over confirm, then send it, as opposed to my iron sights being like, yep, good enough, pull the trigger and just go for it. But um, it's just interesting that it seems like the firearms industry as a whole, uh, everyone seems to be putting red dots on their carry guns and competition guns and all that kind of stuff, thinking that's better. And I'm just I'm I'm curious as to like. I don't know. I guess I'd be interested to know if, if the reason behind the big shift is because, you know, we all think initially that gear will make you better, right? Like, it's always got to be something. Like, when I was starting competition, I had to get a better holster. I had to get a speed holster. I couldn't be using a regular outside-the-waistband holster. It slows down my draw, right? Or, or I have to have better mag pouches because, you know, I have to put one in the front and angle it with my arm so I can get reloads faster and all that kind of stuff. And, and I wonder if that's what the big shift is between or behind the red dot optic um, craze. Not to say red dots are not good. And, like, obviously they've gained popularity. And I don't think they necessarily gained popularity just because of the cool factor. I do think there's a lot of positives that come with putting a red dot on whatever firearm platform you're putting it on. But, yeah, like, I just... I, I still float back towards the idea of... I'd prefer to just have iron sights and and go with it i feel like i'm 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 more comfortable and and faster at doing it because yeah i don't know what do you think do you think do you think a lot of people are just putting the the red dots on the guns just to try and make themselves feel better or be better shooters or do you think like that's a legitimately uh, what, what are your thoughts on so that? i i think the reason you feel you shoot the red dot slower and that you're double confirming your sight picture and like aiming multiple times for every individual shot you're doing the same thing I used to do, which is you're bringing your focus back to your sights as if you were shooting iron sights in hopes that that's going to make your shot more accurate with the red dot. And you just have to realize that it's a complete waste of time and you can let yourself focus on the target 100% of the time. And if you do that, then red dot is faster and you can be more precise as a result of it. I mean, I do think the red dot is a faster sighting system, and it's definitely easier to learn how to shoot it accurately compared to iron sights. Uh, so from that perspective, for sure, red dots are a great way to go. But, you know, iron sights don't break, generally. Uh, red dots run out of batteries. Red dots, the glass can break. Red dots, you know, can be submerged in water and can get clogged up. I don't care what kind of coating you have on it. Like that kind of thing can still happen. 
there are drawbacks to red dots, obviously, but I think the biggest difference is just the way you have to utilize it. Like with a red dot, target focus, 100% all day long, every day. Iron sights, the way I shoot them, I have to transition my focus back and forth from the target more towards the sights, depending on the difficulty of the shot. Where red dot, you just don't have to do that. And in fact, when you do it, it makes you feel like it's slower, but it's not because it's slower, it's because you're doing more things subconsciously that are a waste of time. Yeah. I yep, we we've discussed that before, so that's a that's a good shooter tip there for anyone out there that um is shooting a red dot to make sure you you make it a point to stay target focused because you're absolutely right. I did find that when I and times when I'm shooting my dot, I have to consciously make a effort to focus on the target and even to the point that like for opening or for multigun nationals like before a stage would start and I was starting with my handgun, I had to like I, didn't, I wouldn't say it audibly, but the, the last thought in my head before the timer would go off would be look at the target, like focus on the target, bring the dot to the target kind of thing. Um, so for those of you that are shooting and learning how to shoot uh, red dot optics on your pistols, absolutely, Bill's makes a good point. Stay focused on the target, bring the dot to the target. Don't don't bring your focus back to the the dot like we've been taught and trained over years now. If, if you're going to teach someone brand new how to shoot, um, would you start them off with iron sights or would you start them off with the red dot? Because the argument that I've always heard was that when you when you have a brand new shooter and you teach them how to shoot with a red dot starting off, uh, right off the bat what you're doing is you're lightening the load of what they need to think about when they're actively pulling the trigger. Because instead of, okay, first got to bring the gun up, make sure i got a good stance, good grip, then... Okay, let's take the front sight. Let's drop it into the notch of the rear sight. Let's make sure the top's lined up. Let's make sure there's light on both sides of the front sight. Okay, that looks good. Now let's go ahead and start focusing on the trigger. The the process or the thought is that well, you put a red dot on there, which means that you completely eliminate the the stress of having to make sure the sights are aligned. Instead, is the dot on the target? Yes. Okay, and then the only thing that that person has to focus on is the trigger pull. So if you're teaching a brand new shooter, let's say you were going to go out to the range and, and meet up with someone that had never shot a gun before and they wanted to, to start, would you start them off with an iron sight gun or would you start them off with a red dot? I, you can approach this from a couple of different angles. Um, my wife would tell you the only way to start a new shooter is with an open gun. And that's because it doesn't have any recoil. The trigger is easy to manipulate. And the sighting system is easy to utilize. So it's got a red dot, you've got a compensator, it doesn't have much recoil. So it takes all those extra things that you need to worry about and it lets you focus more on the act of shooting. I kind of think that if you started somebody like that, and I don't think there's a right or a wrong way, right? Like, let me make that very clear. But the same way that you and I have, a, have an issue going to red dots, I think if people started and only shot red dots, if and when they had to transition back to iron sights, they would have that same issue that we have just in the reverse direction, right? Hmm. So I know some really, really good open shooters or red dot shooters that don't shoot iron sights very well. And I'm talking about national champion optic shooters that for the most part, you put iron sights in their hands and they'll still shoot okay, but they're not gonna win. So I think it would just change where you're handicapped. But I don't think there's a right or a wrong way necessarily. Hmm. Okay. 
So if you if you were going to go out and teach a new shooter, then you would probably more than likely start them off with iron sights. I would, but I think I'm also biased because that's how I started, and I feel like that's you know the traditionally proper way to do it. But mm. if somebody wanted to start with optics, I would never say that that's wrong. Okay. Well, so yeah, and and you know, there's you and I both in the same boat. We started with irons, and so that's kind of where we're comfortable with, and that's our comfort zone. But at the same time, I almost look at it like, yeah, there's there's automatic cars out there, and there's paddle shifter cars, but like, it's not a true car unless you know how to drive a stick shift. Right. <laughs> like, there's almost a little bit of nostalgia that goes to the idea of knowing how to properly shoot iron sights as well. Not to mention, as you said. If it can go wrong, it will. Mm-hmm. Every part on a gun will eventually fail. They're machines. They are getting beat up. Every time you pull the trigger, every single part of that firearm is going to get some sort of a beating. Um, so everything's going to break eventually kind of thing. And and that includes a red dot. And so it's kind of like if you completely eliminate the training um, aspect to only being an optic shooter, what happens when that optic does fail you? You know, you can't pick and choose when it's going to fail, and it's never going to fail in a good time. But um, I think, like you said, it's it's almost important to to be able to do both. If you're gonna, I think if you're gonna shoot a red dot, you have to know how to shoot both. If you're just gonna shoot iron sights, then who gives a damn about a red dot? Well, it's <laughs> don't, really don't it's really important it. to understand the concept behind each, right? Whether you shoot irons predominantly or you shoot optics, like if you don't understand, you know, the other system, like you're doing yourself a disservice. So, yeah, definitely you want to use both. But we're talking about starting a new shooter. And, I mean, I I would go either way. I think I don't think there's a wrong way to do it. You want to take one thing that new shooters don't like is noise. So maybe an open gun isn't necessarily the best route. Um, maybe a 9mm on the top end. Maybe even a 22 would be preferable. Because you take the recoil out, you can put a red dot on it. And the noise is very, very low. And I think even for me now, like I react more to the audible from a round going off than the actual recoil itself. Mm. Yeah, that's true. Hey, with that being said, um, do you own any suppressors? No. Why not? (laughs) I don't know, man. There's only so much time in the day. Do you do you think you'll ever want to go down that path? Uh, maybe. Uh, from like a, a hunting application standpoint, yeah. But I mean, my schedule is pretty packed with matches <laughs> and competitions, and like the the amount of time that I have to start hunting is is pretty darn small. And then add a new set of gear and suppressors, and now I'm doing tax stamps and. Yeah, I don't have any SBRs. I don't have any uh, NFA items. Dude, you got to get yourself a suppressor, man. Gotta, you got to. I'll tell you what. It's uh, I've made the mistake of shooting many matches with a um, little bit of an ego of thinking like not. Now, granted, I know for a fact you double plug when you're shooting like your AR and stuff like that, which mm-hmm. is good. I didn't when I was early on and I can totally feel effects of that happening, but man, having a suppressor, even just in the training aspect with as many rounds as I, we, well, we used to shoot anyway, when we would train and practice rifle so much better. Oh, they're just, they're so amazing. 
I'm they a are fun. I, I think the most fun I've had shooting a suppressor is actually like more of a high-powered rifle, like a 338 Norma type thing, reaching out a couple of thousand yards. Suppressors are super cool and stuff like that. Hmm. Yeah. No, I've uh, I've I've broken into the suppressor world, and I'm just like, oh, I get it. I get it. I get why they're so beneficial, and and now I just. It's funny because before I ever bought or before I ever got my first suppressor, I I didn't really have a dog in the fight of the idea of like the ATF is dumb and why it's taking you know at the time like twelve to fourteen months to get the paperwork approved for a suppressor. Now that I have one, I'm just like it's literally just a a, a metal tube with some chambers in it. Like, oh my gosh, I have to wait now seven to eight months to get get it approved is, is kind of silly so i have i have a little bit more of a dog in the fight now that i own one mm-hmm. uh well i own two and i have two more on the way but <laughs> nice yeah. well and there so. there are a lot of european countries that i don't know if they require but it's it's almost it's heavily recommended highly recommended to use a suppressor when hunting in european countries and they're not regulated like they are in the united states so it's very interesting yeah, it, you're absolutely right. And now one of the things that I, I've learned is that the, the difference between like the U.S. suppressor manufacturers versus the European ones is that the U.S. manufacturers build their suppressors to a different level as far as quality goes, where that suppressor can pretty much last you your entire life, um, which is why you get some of the price tags of eight, nine, you know, $1,200 or whatever for some of these suppressors is because it's going to last you the entire, like the rest of your life, you can shoot that suppressor and it will be, it will be good versus in Europe, like a lot of their suppressors you can buy for 150, $200, $300, but like they're the, the quality, they deteriorate much faster. So they may only last you for like, you know, three, 4,000 rounds before you start to see a very, very, big send-off um you know as far as the the quality and the performance of that suppressor goes so you kind of like buy a suppressor almost you know every four or five depending on how much you shoot obviously i think we're as, as americans we also look at it as like well shit two thousand rounds that's nothing i can shoot that in a month it's like well in europe two thousand rounds is probably a lot to be shooting through your hunting rifle <laughs> like not many people are shooting well and that's a lot of rounds of hunting rifles, shoot through but. a hunting rifle in the united states too i mean i don't i don't know anyone or I don't know many people that have two thousand rounds through a hunting gun, um, unless they're unless they unless they use it for like some sort of like maybe they go to a weekend um, long range match or something like that just for shits and giggles and use it because like if I if I, ever, I I don't own a bolt action hunting gun yet but if I did and like someone was like hey you want to come shoot a long range match I'd be like yeah sure I'll suck but what the hell why not like i i got i got the toy i can go play the game but speaking of hunting um, uh are you familiar with a youtuber named hoodie who i'm not so he's uh he's kind of like an everyman's hunter guys decked out in camo he's super cool personality on on youtube he does a lot of hunting stuff and he and i shot something several months ago called the rock chuck olympics together <coughs> and uh, i shared a rental car with him and super cool guy anyway he was talking about some comments that he got on some gear review video or hunting video that he had and he it was like one of the the most hilarious question comments that he's gotten 
and it was somebody asking about uh, velocity on one of his rifles. And they were of the opinion, or they had the impression, that the farther downrange the bullet went, the faster the bullet got. Okay. So he said this guy was like, yeah, so it, like, it exits the barrel at X feet per second. And then how fast is it going at 300 yards? And Hootie's like, well, you know, it's, you know, less. He's like, well, how's that possible? It's increasing velocity. <laughs> like, was convinced of that fact. I thought that was funny. Well, you know, the world is flat, too. And the Coriolis so. effect is not real. Well, fake, it, no, fake news. it can't be because again the world is flat there is no round like what do you mean the rotation of the earth no no all right so let's talk about that because i've seen your posts about that but i never actually um every time i thought about it we've always been in a match and we end up going uh, what the hell was that event can you explain what that was exactly uh yeah so gavin at ultimate the ultimate reloader on youtube did a collaboration series with several sponsors and manufacturers and put on what he ended up calling the rock chuck olympics and it's on youtube so you know google it check it out uh all the episodes are posted uh but it was i think like an eight or a ten episode mini series that they did on the ultimate reloader youtube channel and they brought uh five or six you know, popular shooter personalities on YouTube. They brought me as a competition shooter representing Canik and a PRS shooter, F class precision rifle shooter, and a couple of hunters. And we shot head to head and murdered a bunch of steel rock chucks with stag arms, AR 15s, and Canik 9mm pistols. Okay, so it was a competition then, um, but. It wasn't a competition in the fact that like all nothing but top level shooters were going there. It sounds like it was kind of like a cross cross marketing idea of bringing people from all firearm disciplines together to try and compete. Is that yeah, exactly explanation of it? And it turned now were you guys split up in teams? It was an individual sport, so we were all competing, you know, head to head against each other, and they had a bunch of different shooting challenges. They had you know like a hidden they called it a hidden rock chuck. Uh, stage. They had a speed pistol stage. They had an extreme long range pistol stage. They had an extreme long range rifle stage. They had a two gun stage. They had a PRS stage. So they had a whole bunch of different types of shooting that you would see. And then they had a, a hunter style stage, which was that sort of the hidden rock chuck stage. And everyone had really good stages. Everyone had really terrible stages. <laughs> But it was a great time. Uh, I got to learn a lot from uh, Eric Cortina, who's a F-Class world champion rifle shooter, as well as Peter Milan, who came in from South Africa, and he specializes in PRS-style shooting. So I learned a lot of really valuable information from really high-level rifle shooters. So it was a, a really fun experience for me. Uh, so is that an event then that uh, like what do you know what their plans are as far as like do they want to expand to becoming like their own shooting organization or is that just kind of like something they just wanted to do for marketing and they'll probably just try, try and keep it within that, that stay within their lane that would be a question for Gavin at Ult- the Ultimate Reloader well I might have to reach out to him because that okay. sounds fun uh, especially for the people that, that 
jump around in the firearms or, or you know like like i said like being that i'm now into hunting that sounds like a, a fun challenge for me even though i'd probably get my ass whooped on, on the prs long range side stuff but i'll tell you what uh, when when eric started talking about uh what was it altitude density and you know the barometric pressure and the wind values and stuff like that i understood what he's saying but i have no idea what he meant <laughs> <laughs> so he was he was speaking english but you just couldn't right exactly yeah no i think we've all been in that situation that was like when you first time you get into the medical field and people start throwing out like terms and stuff like that like patients laying supine and or supine and uh you know having distal pain from the elbow you're like what why can't you just say uh patient was laying on his back and his arm hurt <laughs> that sounds like an easier way to say it than the right. supine patient had distal pain from the shoulder <laughs> like but well you know, we yeah, eric was uh, one of those cool guys so he has all this neat technology so he has a, a kestrel that's tied to an app on his phone that has gps coordinates and that pulls uh barometric data like from your location and you can measure distances so you don't even have to arrange things necessarily you can from a google map you can pull a point to a point and get an exact distance from those two locations and off of that he has technology that will give him holds in mills or moas or whatever so there's all that stuff i need to buy <laughs> and it'll also tell you wind drift and things like that and somebody asked him, uh, you, if you don't have all this, like, you know, what do you, what do you do in X, Y, Z situation? And he's like, well, you guess, <laughs> <laughs> except he's done it for so long and he's seen so many different, uh, winds and different velocities of wind. And, you know, like a, a piece of grass moves this much. He, his guess is pretty darn accurate. So no, it was cool to shoot with those guys. That does sound like a fun. So you were there as a competitor, not just as like a, a stagehand RO or anything like that. I was there as the Canic pistol expert, as well as a competitor. Nice. And and did that? See, I don't know because it, it's hard because when you, when you get into something like that where they they put you in like hunting scenarios where you have to go and like locate a target and then shoot it and stuff, it's still not quite a hunting scenario because until you actually have an animal on the other side that you're trying to to put down and it's moving and you're moving and it's breathing and it can catch something, it adds a new dynamic. But I know we've talked about a little bit the idea of you coming out to Missouri sometime uh, to come on a hunt. Um, what are your thoughts on? hunting and uh hunting for your own food and stuff like that do you feel like that's something that uh any fire every firearms owner should try or do you feel like that's just it give or take like it doesn't necessarily matter like what are your thoughts on that i hunt every single day john i go get in my car and i drive down to costco <laughs> and i get a big either rotisserie chicken or some frozen chicken breasts or ground turkey or a big old steak and I plop it in my cart, and then I pay, and then I drive home. Yes, I think every everyone should do it. I've never actually gone hunting. Um, that's something I've just never had the opportunity to do. But I absolutely think it's a good thing, and I like the idea of killing my own meat and eating it. And venison is delicious. 
which I've I've brought some, and we definitely tried. Cause I, what was the what was the first thing I brought? Was that the it was the smoked ground? Jerky. I thought it was smoked jerky. Yeah, well, you've had that, but like the first thing I actually brought, where like you had to cook it, I think it was. Oh, burgers, that's right. right. Yes, it was. It was ground ground. Venison with bacon in it. Was it elk? No, it was ven- it was it was okay. venison. Yeah, it was deer. So uh, now. How much BLM land do you guys have out there in Arizona? Or is it a lot? Is a lot of it privately owned? It's all BLM. It's all BLM, right? Arizona has one of the highest densities of BLM land in the country. So what is what is stopping you from going out and trying to do like a coyote hunt or something like that? Because you literally have all the gear you need. You, so you've my, got, you've got my some wife, brown clothes and my wife has gone coyote hunting. She's gone bobcat hunting. She's gone fox hunting. Like my wife has done all that stuff. I just, I never have. Is is it because of lack of information? Is it because of uh, lack of, well, it's not, not lack of resources as far as the physical gear, but just lack of resources of maybe having a call or something like that that's that's stopping you? Or is it lack of time? Because I, I, I do know you're busy as hell. So Yeah, so, I mean, my work schedule when the shooting season's going on is generally in the middle of hunting seasons. So mm-hmm. a lot of the major matches I know early November, uh, my shooting schedule is packed. Among those matches is Area 2, which is either the first or second weekend here in Phoenix. And this is in November. And I know a lot of people that don't shoot that match because that's whitetail season or whatever it is at that point. So I know a lot of my matches conflict with um, the hunting seasons like that. As far as varmint hunting, I'm not pretty sure there's no season for that kind of thing here you can pretty much drop them whenever yeah yeah so i don't have a good excuse for that <laughs> so i'm i'm gonna t- i would highly suggest you go out and at least give coyote coyote uh hunting a try which don't get me wrong i i haven't had a chance to go out coyote hunting um like properly coyote hunting i've had coyotes come across me when i was deer hunting um and i've even tried to take a shot at one although typically when i'm deer hunting i'm using my bow so it's a little bit fair fairer of a fight um and coyotes are small targets like a a deer is not a huge target either uh, especially here in missouri like they're not like an elk but like yeah i ended up i ended up taking a shot at a coyote at um 30 yards it was he was 31 yards and i tried to take a shot at him and i ended up uh just clipping some hair off of his tail and he ran off and still chased the deer that he was chasing so i was sad to i was sad that i didn't drop him but again, it was still with a bow, which... You know, speaking of hunting, the hunting lodge that we stayed in uh, Nebraska for uh, Area 3 at was nice. That was such a diamond in the rough find. Um, I I was blown away when I saw the pictures. And then when I walked in, because I, I got to be the first one to walk into the property. And holy crap, that, yes, that lodge was absolutely insane. Um Maybe I'll try and post a, a couple pictures or something like that on this post. Uh, yeah. So Area 3, and that was a lot of fun. So that, that was a match that was held in, in Grand Island, Nebraska. Um, we had a fun time. We had, we had a great group of people staying at our Airbnb and all that kind of stuff. Now, you accomplished something at that match that a few shooters I know for a fact have ever been able to do, which is you got to a point where you didn't even have to shoot the last stage in order to win. So... I mean, 
what what do you do? Because I know you came up to me and you said, well, well, should I shoot the stage or not? Which, of course, I was like, well, why wouldn't you shoot the stage? And you brought up a very good point. Well, I could DQ and lose. Now, granted, if, as long as we don't do anything stupid, typically we keep that um, that that problem at bay. But were you legitimately considering not shooting the last stage? No. <laughs> no, uh, my goal for the match was to try and win the overall in carry optics and or limited which I came up short on both of those attempts, but I was close. But, so uh, so and, for, for Area 3, there weren't a ton of top-level production shooters. So, I mean, I don't want to say if I didn't win the match, like, I would be disappointed, but that's the reality. Like, I expected to win that match if unless something drastically went wrong. But my goal was to not only compete with the people in production that were shooting my gear, but also to compete against the people in limited with high cap 40 caliber major guns and carry optics with red dots and 23 round magazines. So that's, I like to shoot for something that's kind of out of reach sometimes. And Mm -hmm. sometimes I get it, sometimes I don't, but I'd rather shoot for something that's, what was it? If you shoot for the moon, if you miss, you're still among the stars. But it's just, it's something to keep you motivated, something to keep you pressing your aggression. And it works for me. That's what I use PCC for at local matches. So local matches, we have some really good shooters, but they don't always shoot every local USPSA match. So if I'm shooting limited or production or single stack or whatever division I'm shooting, I'm not necessarily competing against people in those divisions. I'm competing against somebody shooting a PCC or an open gun who isn't as good a shooter as I am, but with their advantage that elevates their ability. So Mm. now I've got more equal competition to gauge myself against. And I don't always win, but I try. Well, and yeah, I think that's, that's a good thing to have because it's, um, it was one of the things that uh, I, I fell into with being in Vegas, because for the longest time, I always had someone to chase. There was always a better shooter than me. And then it got to a point where I became the top shooter in the area. And yeah, at that point, it no longer became like, okay, well, I don't, I don't want to just, if I'm going to shoot limited, I don't, I don't care about winning limited. I just want to win overall. I want to make sure I want to beat as many open guys or PCC guys. And even, even um, when we were doing steel challenge, then my goal became I wanted to beat the rimfire guys because they get to start with the gun at the low ready, not in a holster, whereas I had to draw from surrender each time and stuff. So, right. and, and I think and you're just, right. It, and just to be clear, shooting limited, shooting production, shooting carry optics, you can brag about winning an overall. But if you're shooting open or PCC, don't tell me you won the overall and you beat a bunch of revolver and single stack shooters. Get out of here. <laughs> all right. That's nonsense. Yes. Yep. I, I would agree to that. Um, <laughs> well and let's be honest too like the overall is literally just bragging rights for that particular like there's some people that just don't give a damn like oh cool you won over i don't care that you won overall it doesn't matter as long as you won your division that's fine but some people like make it a point to be like oh i was i was fourth overall it's like okay cool that's still well not- i mean you'll see some people that you know like I, you know it's first place overall at you know xyz club and you go and everyone's prepping for single stack nationals and revolver nationals and no one else shot PCC and, you know, 
like you're really bragging about beating a bunch of eight round single stacks and revolvers with a rifle and 50 round drum come on (laughs) (laughs) yeah yep exactly but like you said and, and back to the original point was the idea of like i think that that is a very good point and and good thing to to focus on and maybe even let people out there know like i think having the fire um for competition is absolutely based upon you need to have something to chase like even race dogs they put a fake rabbit out in front of them to give them that desire to chase something and run fast and stuff and and if you can't find someone in your own division then yeah step up go something a little bit more ridiculous if you're shooting yeah, if you're shooting production and you keep beating all the limited guys, then it's time to start focusing on the open guys because it'll it'll keep that drive going of wanting to to improve and challenge yourself and stuff like that. Um, for on sure. on that topic of kind of match pressure or competition, going back to USPSA Multiga Nationals, their format that they did. How do you feel about the last four stages? on Sunday that everyone shot? I thought it was a very cool idea to have um, the last part of the match being a legit race where after the first two days, everyone had shot all the same stages and we all had the same stages to shoot at the end. So you can kind of keep a little bit closer eye on the race. But one thing that I've always found anticlimactic about the shooting sports is the fact that like you you watch an f1 race you don't know who's going to win until the very last lap when everyone's crossing the finish line someone can wreck someone can spin out or anything like that things can change very quickly and then the moment that the race is over like it was everything leading up to that moment and then it's over and it matters here's the results right and I always thought it was interesting with the shooting world where, like, we have the hour arbitration period. Not to say it's not important because mistakes do happen. I've caught mistakes on, on my matches and all that kind of stuff. Um, but it's always seemed kind of, kind of anticlimactic to do an awards ceremony where after everyone's known that you've won for an hour, now they have to clack for you while you collect your trophy. <laughs> was, right. I, I wish there was a way where we could and, – and, you know, I think – Going back to World Multigun Match, uh, the Surefire World Multigun Match in Vegas, I think Pete had something that was very, very fun um, at the end of that match, which was the idea of having a final stage shootout amongst, I think it was like the top 12 or top 16 shooters or something like that. Something where, like that, yeah. where it was where, basically at a, an advanced value stage. So there was a possibility for more of a point shift off of a yeah, shoot off than you know your last stage in the actual match technically yeah like it gave you one last opportunity right there put up or shut up to improve or or to even decrease like if you if you really shot a crap stage and everyone else edged you out with the pressure and stuff but you know that that made it a little bit more exciting because then it literally came down to the very last shooter could either completely burn it down and shuffle the entire order or could crash and burn under the pressure of being that last shooter and shift things or, or whatever. And I thought that was that was kind of cool because like it was almost like as soon as that was done, it immediately went to, okay, let's hand out the awards because that shoot-off was kind of the arbitrary period where all the other competitors could argue their scores. You know, 
they noticed there was a mistake or there had to be a change or something like that. And then while that process was taking place, the top shooters, which knew where we stood, got one more chance to try and shuffle the order up. I thought that was that was very cool. I would love I would love to find or see if there was a way to make it to where there could be a little bit more excitement of the end of of one having the race finish under race pressure kind of and then two the other thing i think is lacking in our sport is um visual participation so three gun nation you know when they would do the shoot offs like we i think the first time you and i saw the shoot off was at shot show when they were doing they were filming the finals yeah and we jumped on a bus and went out there and we didn't realize how cold it was going to be and it we was were wearing, a, like it was t-shirts. a pretty it was a awkward experience and we were cold the whole night but it was still fun. I mean, we got to watch a whole bunch of really good shooters shoot multi-gun. And it was visual, right? Like everything either falls down or explodes, right? So it's mm-hmm. compared to most of what you see in USPSA, it was much more visual. Yeah, and I think that's that's one of the things that we're, we're lacking as far as um, viewership value. What's what I'm looking for? Like there's... I think that's why Top Shot did so well. And I talked about that with Chris Chang when I had him on was like the idea, like when you were watching the show Top Shot, you knew if someone hit the target or missed because it either blew up, shattered, broke, or it didn't. Right. Versus us, like we'll shoot a 32 round stage and 30 of those rounds are going into cardboard targets, which means that you're seeing splash on the berm. But where did they hit on the cardboard? You know, I've, I've shown people my videos and they've been like, are you, are you hitting anything? Like, well, yeah, the bullets are going through the cardboard. Like, Oh, okay, because I just kept seeing you hit the dirt. You see, I don't think that's why Top Shot did well. I'm not saying that's that's the only reason, but I do think that was one reason, because like, if it was just like, oh, they just shot a bunch of targets, and now let's go downrange and score them, and you got to wait 30 seconds for someone to come back and say, okay, your total points is this. Mm-hmm. You know, I think visually, we, I think e- even in general, like when it comes to food, we're still visual creatures. If something looks good, then we want to eat it, right? Even if it ends up tasting like crap, it's still for a moment. You're like, God, that looks so good. Um, I think shooting could be the same way, like a lot of sports and stuff like that, where it's just like, eh. it's, it's something I think we're missing, but not missing in the aspect of if we wanted to try and grow the sport to the more public arena. As far as our sport goes with with what we have i think we have a very solid foundation and i'm happy with with how the sport is but yeah and going back to multi-nationals with uh, those last four stages um with everyone having completed the exact same portion of the match right so stages one through eight every competitor has those stages in and you know the remaining stages are nine through twelve so that aspect absolutely loved i wasn't the biggest fan of the style of stages that they were because uh, they were 100% static stand and shoot. Um, they were shotgun heavy, which I'm never a fan of because shotguns are dumb. <laughs> and it was just a, a possibility for a much larger point swing based on the overall time it took you to shoot the stage, right? So in USPSA multi-gun, a 10-round stage or 10-second stage is worth 100 points. A hundred second stage is also worth a hundred points. So if you have a miss penalty, a ten second penalty on a hundred a hundred second stage, you lose what ten points. If you have a miss ten second penalty on a ten second stage, you just lost fifty points. You lost half of the available percentage points on that stage. So 
maybe there's room to grow as far as the type of stages that we finish the match on. Like that would be my biggest pet peeve. But absolutely, I think a race to the finish with everyone knowing exactly where they're at going into their final set of stages and single stage is way better than cruising through the match and hoping for the best. Yeah, no, I would agree with you. Yeah, the, the stand and shoots were a bit anticlimactic. It, it was, well, it felt like trying to turn a multi-gun match into a USPSA match by making it such a technical stage where you had to execute perfectly in order to make it make it closer and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, but like like you said, like it, one, it was multi-gun, and it was, the, the offset was so far off. Like, yeah, when all the other stages throughout the match were literally anywhere from 40 to 120 seconds, and then all of a sudden you've got four stages that are all under 15 seconds. Well, the longest um, stage that I think I shot was 21 seconds, and it was an all-shotgun stage. And the rifle-pistol stages were low teens, and then the last rifle or the last shotgun stage was... 14, 15, something like that. So yeah, yeah we're, we're all very short shotgun stage. Pardon? We're not going to talk about the last shotgun stage. <laughs> Your last shotgun <laughs> stage was my first shotgun stage of that day. And I had the privilege of watching you run it. And I was all excited. I had my camera out. And I'm like, oh, I'll get some good angles and get in there. And then, you're... well, I was up. I was up there for plenty of time for you to get all the angles you could possibly want. Your run was gold for b-roll footage there's a lot of yes. b-roll off of that <laughs> well it started out so well because like i smashed the movers I, yeah. I smashed the clay targets no problem it was just that one stupid pipe well uh, and then finally for anyone that you, doesn't know you get to you get to a point where your shotgun's working 100 percent, and then you're presented with a, a can at 20 plus yards that a probably ass can that probably weighs eight pounds seven or eight pounds and you need to knock this over with birdshot and your choke just wasn't tight enough and your shot just wasn't fast or heavy enough and it was a bad day well and then to walk off a stage and have everyone telling you like dude i think if you shot like one or two more shots at it you probably would have tipped it off because it was right on the edge of the stand and you're just like well why didn't someone cough or give me an indicator <laughs> like i mean we so. all know that that stage was the difference between you and Daniel Warner, so. Yeah, exactly. It absolutely was like between like me and Daniel Horner, as far as like you know, which one of us um, finished the match or didn't. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was yeah, that was that was rough. But either way, no, I I, I agree. And I, I I guess, God, you know what, multi gun though. It's so interesting how USPSA, like how the shooting sports are so different in the fact that like it, it's still a race, but like, you know, USPSA, we're talking about the difference between first and 10th place will be like a two second gap versus three gun. First difference between first and 10th place could literally be. It could be minutes. 30 seconds. Right. Yeah, 30 seconds, 40 seconds, whatever. Yeah, no, USP the... USPSA is all about execution of your, your stage plan to perfection or as close to perfection as possible gun manipulation speed and accuracy right all of those mm. things come into play for uspsa pistol for three gun or multi-gun whether it's uspsa or some kind of outlaw style it's all about risk mitigation it's all about not making that massive mistake it's making sure your equipment runs as well as possible from just a reliability standpoint 
but ultimately it's just not having the disaster that sets you back. It's all risk mitigation for multi-gun. Yeah, and I think multi-gun also is very, very much... Um... No, I don't know, like, because USPSA, I think the, I think it's maybe two different, two different types of mental aspects of it. Because USPSA is definitely, I think, more higher pressure in the fine tune stuff. But I mean, at, at, well, at any match, I guess you go to, if you have that like give up mentality of like, well, that's it for me, then I'm done. Then like, don't be surprised if you continue to slide down the ranks versus constantly trying to want to stay in the fight and stay engaged. Because I mean, that's that's like basically what happened with me at Area Three, like. My first day was so terrible, and I couldn't I couldn't put my finger on what was going on. But the second day, I, I wasn't like, well, I'm out of the race. It was just kind of more like, well, I don't know if I'm out of the race entirely, so I'm just going to go down and try and lay some hate and then see if, you know, see where the things stack up. But at no point did I necessarily give up. I still had the intentions of wanting to, to win stages and, and beat my competitors and stuff. But I think it's important for some people. And I, I think that's maybe where some people kind of – the, the the world of competition maybe eludes them because like to to be able to get beat to hell for a, a full day and then to come back wanting to look for more mm-hmm. and to get back in the fight is just kind of i think weird for some people to to comprehend no we like to abuse ourselves there's no question about that <laughs> well and and also remember this you got to understand so so nils is is probably one of the few professional competition shooters i would say and, and what i mean by that is that like you know tiger woods when he gets done playing around a golf does not go into the clubhouse put on a uniform and start checking guests in to play a round of 18 right he plays golf that's literally what he gets paid for so nils here while he does have a job with canic a lot of his job literally does come from the fact that they're sending him out to win with their product and and also obviously R and D. He's he's testing it. He's beating the hell out of it. Like we 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 get to accelerate the life of our products, right? Like we're we're putting them through tests that it might take a normal person a year to put as many rounds downrange as we will in two or three months. But well, and a lot um, of what you see in the firearm industry today is from competition shooters over the last three or four decades, right? Like from shooting style and technique to firearm design, optics design, like most of that has come from the competition world. Yep, that's very true. Otherwise we'd all still be shooting Weaver with one hand up and revolvers and... It is a possibility, yeah. Or even the fact that like high high capacity uh, 2011 style pistols, like the way those came about was literally someone being like, um, I'm just going to start welding things together and see if they stick <laughs> like that. Yeah. I mean, development and innovation and stuff is just people saying, what the hell, let's give it a try. Why not? Right. But, um, well, yeah. it usually comes I... from us crazy people that just wants to beat their friends with their cool pistol in a match. And that evolves into, you know, micro red dot sights and competition optics and slide lightning and optics cuts and mag wells and extended mag releases and compensators. And like it's unbelievable how much stuff has come out of sport shooting. And how much has how much has come to uh, the EDC life? Because if, if you if you we look back 10 years, right, and people seeing open guns, I, I, what was it? Uh, Heroes, I think was the TV show, right? Um, where the bad guy 
the the cheerleader's dad, I think, is who it was. He he would like cha- he was basically his job was to chase around I've all never these seen people. Heroes. Super- I know what you're talking. No, about, okay, but I've never so seen it. <laughs> so the great great show for the first like three seasons, and after that, it falls off just like most shows do, right? But um, so you've got these people that they they start to develop these these powers randomly. So like one guy all of a sudden just one day decides that or, or figures out that he can run super fast like the Flash, and another guy figures out that he knows how to fly, and another person knows that they can go invisible, right? And this character who is a, a cheerleader and she becomes a superhero, but her father works for a, a government agency whose job is to track these heroes down, these people with hero abilities, and either arrest them or, or kill them and eliminate them, right? And the gun that he uses in the series was an Infinity 2011 high cap pistol with a red dot and a compensator on it and stuff. And he carries it like in a shoulder holster, right? Right. But I remember I was watching it the first time someone saw that gun. They were like, oh my God, that thing is so cool. And I'm like, do you want to shoot one? I know someone that's got one. We can, we can call them up and go shoot it and stuff. Like their mind was blown the first time they saw an open gun on, on TV. Right. So, we fast forward to today, and now you see all these people that are drawing from appendix carry concealed, a Glock 19 with a ramjet suppre- or a compensator from you know Radiant Arms or something like that. They've got a Vortex red dot on it. They've got a Magwell, and you're just like, wow, we literally turned competition guns into carry guns using the technology. Whereas 10 years ago, we used to j- like we used to joke like, yeah, who's going to carry an open gun around, right? Like, right. Now you've kind of got versions that are very, very similar to what an open gun was. What the? Because it's the Sig, uh, is it like the Macro X three sixty five or something like that? That has like the it's like the four inch barrel, but like a five inch slide because it's got. Is that a, the one with the uh, the porting in the slide with the barrel that vents gas up? Yeah, like that's literally an open gun. It's a smaller version, but mm-hmm. it's got. Everything that you you can put a red dot on it. It's got a compensator, and, all, and now that's considered an everyday carry. If you want a great concealable gun that you can rely on, you know here here it is. And it's just like, yeah, that's funny how now the competition gun is. Oh yeah, but can you shoot a Glock stock seventeen? No, you can't. Can you? I can. That's how the that's competition right. Cause, because the triggers are terrible. You should buy a Canic. Yeah, yeah. What? No, you know what? Well, that's that's definitely not a shame. There's there's so much truth to that statement. Um, you know, I've I've done a couple videos about the mechanics that we've we've won. Therefore, I can say what I think about them because it's not like you guys sent me a gun and and I have to owe you a favor now. Like I won it. So if I think that's it's true, trash, this guy this guy trash, comes right? over our booth at NRA and he'll win our random gun giveaways. I'm like, damn it! I like I'm just scanning through this thing. And we random generate John's name, and I'm calling the names out, right? And I, I, honest to God, was this close to not calling his name because I knew how bad it would look. But yeah, so that was a legit win for those of you that keep thinking it was fake. Okay, that's right. Um, but that's, but I, I swear say... that went through my head. I'm like, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> well, and when you called it, I was like, what? What trick are they playing here? But. No, actually, I did watch the guy. Um, I can't remember his name, um, but he was basically yeah doing the scroll random, and then when he when he stopped it and it was my name, I was like, oh my god, are you for real? That yeah. just happened. Okay. By the way, anyone, uh, but either way, anyone that ever attends the NRA annual meeting, uh, it travels around the country. It happens once a year. Uh, Canic Firearms and Century Arms have a booth 
and we do gun giveaways, we do swag giveaways, we've got patches, we've got t-shirts. We love talking with our customers at shows like NRA and we love giving back to them. So swing by the Canex Century Arms booth and I'll hook you up with some swag. And it's good stuff too. Like the shirts, Kelly wears the shirts all the time because she steals them from me. Um, the patches are your guy. Your guys's marketing department when it comes to creation of PVC patches is so insane. The, the entire rival um, spy versus spy patch that came out. I'm fairly certain that was probably the most popular patch um, that was cycling around the um, the showroom floor. Yeah, we've had the spy versus spy uh, patch this year. I want to say it was last year. We had the big old PVC Tic Tac Canic patch. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was super popular. And we do other fun stuff too, like for for U.S. Palm, which is uh, our magazine company. Uh, we do a, a banana clip, so it's just a like a yellow banana magazine. It's a magazine clip, banana clip. It's funny. <laughs> <laughs> so we do stuff like that. We, I mean, we enjoy guns. We like shooting. We like having a good time. So we definitely bring that to our product. Yes, and when and then when it comes to the product itself, like you guys are just knocking out of the park. Um, I can't I can't recall a single canic I ever picked up, pulled the trigger, and didn't think that like one, it feels like well, it's already broken in. Because you know, typically, like when you get a new gun, like sometimes it can just feel a little rough, and then after, as rounds go through it, it gets smoother. Um, your guys' trigger right on the box already feels like it's been thoroughly broken in without actually having to be broken in, and just yeah, the the take up, the break, the the after travel, like. It's insane. It's really insane the quality gun you get for the price you guys sell it. So, um, well, and the trigger is probably the main reason people shoot our guns so well. Like that's the main factor in determining how accurate you are with a pistol is the trigger. So if you have the most accurate gun in the world, but if you can't pull the trigger in a way that the sights don't stay still on target when you press it, it doesn't matter. But our mm-hmm. gun and our triggers historically have been very predictable they have a good clean break so when you pull the trigger the sights don't move off target which means the bullet goes where you want it to go not some other place mm-hmm. so you're the golfer with the good shot not the golfer that thought he did everything right and then the ball goes far far left <laughs> exactly exactly Right on. Well, um, let's let's talk about one more thing just real quick before we kind of start to wrap this up. And that is the idea of um, you shoot other things like a camera. And and what I want to get to with with something like this is obviously there's a lot of people out there that uh, do a lot of filming, uh, whether or not it's with phones and, and DSLRs or all that kind of stuff. And so my, my question to you Knowing your background behind photography, which is not, not you're not a professional photographer, but you do know quite a bit about cameras and all that kind of stuff, right? With the quality of cell phones nowadays, do you think people still need to be investing in DSLRs to get good content creation? Um, or do you think like the cell phone is becoming the new, like if you've got a cell phone, then just focus on that. You can get great match videos. And, and I think there's other things too, like the Insta360 or the GoPros, but that's a whole separate scenario. I'm talking about just the, the general shooter that doesn't necessarily care about putting a YouTube channel together, but does want to have memories and stuff. What are your thoughts on the photography world now that cameras and cell phones have gotten as good as they are, knowing what you know about the cameras? So, yes, I can pretend to be a camera snob when I want to. 
Um, I don't have a whole bunch of high dollar or expensive video cameras. Most of what I have is uh, photography specific, even though they could be used as video cameras if I really, really wanted to. Um, iPhones these days take better video than we need for YouTube by far. 99% of the time when I watch a YouTube video, I'm out for a walk and my phone's in my pocket. I'm just listening to it. So while video is super important for certain things, I think audio is probably as important, if not more important than the video. So like if you have an iPhone and you have some kind of external microphone or some kind of wireless mic system, probably the best combo you can possibly have. The one downside I've seen with the iPhone for me is just data storage. Like everything mm. goes to your photo, photo reel or photo roll. And I haven't figured out the most efficient way for me to, to deal with all the information or all the, the storage required yet. But from a film standpoint, just taking the video, it's so much easier. There's less stuff to set up. And if you have the video, one that's better than not having the video, but you're also not having to spend a whole bunch of time thinking about, you know, settings or ISO settings and frame rate and blah, 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 blah. You know, if you're taking 4K at 30 frames a second, that's going to be good enough for a YouTube video. And you pair it with decent audio and that's all you need. A million followers. Bam. A million followers just like that. We're going we're gonna to post how to get a million followers and it's only going to get like six views. Yep. <laughs> Okay, so filming of match videos in itself can almost become like an art because there's sometimes you hand your camera off to someone and they film it, and when you get the footage back, you're like, oh, God, like they did a terrible job. So let's have Nils Jonasson's pro tips on how to properly frame and film someone while they're shooting in, let's say, maybe what are your top three tips that you could give to someone? Well, so if you're filming someone else or you're filming for a, a particular purpose, if you're filming for a good YouTube video, you want cool angles and brass ejection and aggressive movement and seeing the target. Like those are some elements that are really important for an entertaining YouTube video. If you're taking video for the intent to learn from your video, right? So you shoot a match, you have somebody video you, if you're gonna learn from it, you want a whole body view, which I think in YouTube is probably less aesthetically pleasing. It's a little more boring, but you see what your body's doing. You see what you're, how you're moving, how efficiently you're moving, how you can change and increase your efficiency. So from that perspective, not 0.5X, whoever puts the phone on 0.5X zoom, all should burn in hell. So leave it on <laughs> 1X. Uh, or zoom in if you need to, to get the right angle. Uh, but you want to be able to see head to toe. You want to be able to see the feet, see the ground. And if you can get a good angle with targets and, you know, all the aesthetic stuff, great. But you want a whole body in the video for me. Okay. Uh, and the only thing I'll add to that is to start filming a good two or three seconds before the shooting takes place, and then to keep filming a good two to three seconds after the shooting has finished. Um, actually, we, we do something where 
we will film up until the RO either says the time or we can get a picture of the time mm -hmm. just for reference. I know video typically in USPSA is, is deemed uh, inadmissible when it comes to arguing something. However, you also have a very difficult time arguing that something isn't right. Um, when you say, well, my score says it's 17, 18, but watch this. And they show, and you show them a video of an RO saying 1237. It's like, Oh right. yeah. Well, what the hell happened? Like there's very clearly there was a mistake there. So not to say that that automatically gets changed, but then you can at least argue for a reshoot. And stuff, well, but. or, you know, they, you get the time, the last shots recorded and you get a video of the timer and then unload and show clear. And then by the time they give it to the guy on the board or the guy on the tablet, the time's changed because they picked up mm -hmm. the racking of the slide or something like that. And like you said, video isn't necessarily admissible in USPSA, but at least at that point, you know what's correct. Yeah, you can you can prove there's something. Uh, it, it might not be officially proving, but you can also just make a very good argument as to like, uh, well, here's what happened and and whatnot so that's the only other tip i would add to it yes uh, i do think video can be very helpful when it comes to training for like you said like you can learn a lot about how you enter a position or how you leave a position you can learn a lot about um you know are you are you doing like the slow tank turret where you just keep your gun fully extended or you do you drive the gun out and stuff and all that can be very helpful in, in video and i think that's what maybe some people lose out on that fact um of how important video can be when it comes to training, but also don't do this. Don't, don't keep rewinding and watching your screw up because all you're doing is just enforcing like, yep, I suck. Oh my God. Look how much I suck. I'm so terrible. I should just go ahead and quit. Nope. This is, you don't know, do that. Let's be honest. Most people are not like you and me. Most people don't post their disasters on the internet. So yeah, most people post a, a quick snippet of highlight reels and that's another pet peeve of mine is highlight reels without a complete stage. What can you do with that? You have no idea how the competitor actually shot, right? So it's a snippet of here where your split was really good and you have a good reload and you hit those steel in a row. And then you edit all that together across 20 stages and wow, I'm amazing. But I, I like posting when I can, you know, complete stages start to finish where you can actually see what I did and that it was good or that it wasn't you know sometimes things don't go right yeah that's true and it happens everywhere i think i i've always joked with people like the day i the day i walk away from a match having shot the perfect match where i did everything perfectly and i don't i i walk away from that match saying like i couldn't have done anything better i'm just gonna quit because it'll never happen again probably <laughs> like to have that kind of a match yeah i've come close to that but never never completely yeah all right, well, let's let's kind of do a wrap-up. I like to wrap things up with a quick little, like, uh, this or that kind of uh, rapid-fire question session. And then after that, I'll give you the floor to to, to give us a final wrap-up and whatnot. But uh, we're just going to go ahead and start right off the bat. Uh, for Nils Jonasson, do you prefer cake or pie? Oh, pie. for Well, cheesecake or pie. I'm not a huge cake, cake person. Cake or pie. Okay. No, no, not, not, so, no, no so not, not, not just cake. Cheesecake. Well, it's a very specific kind of cake. But is cheese... Okay, so we're going to have to... Uh, you know what? I'm going to make this. We're going to do a post. We're going to do a post. We're going to say, is cheesecake considered cake or 
is that closer to a well it's not a I pie mean, it's, though. It, it's not a pie it's a specific type of cake but like i don't normally enjoy cake as a whole but cheesecake is one of my one of my go-to's interesting okay okay but, but between these two so if you had to pick like traditional cake or pie then you're going with pie yeah okay friends or the office oh friends <laughs> you can't you can't pair that one together though right like you i mean they're both such, well, so what would, they're both such so good what would shows. be the argument then For, what, what would you put up against friends what would i put up well they're just such different shows right uh well i mean in a way but not they're pretty different <laughs> <laughs> So what would have been a good show to, to pair against Friends then? Because I, I almost thought of Big Bang Theory because it's kind of the same. You know, sit, sitcom-y, group of friends. Each friend has some, their own particular quirk. Right. Um, Between those two, stuff. I would still choose Friends. But that's just because I'm not the biggest Big Bang Theory. Like, I'd rather watch an episode of Bluey than Big Bang. <laughs> Who wouldn't, right? <laughs> Bluey is amazing. Bluey is awesome. All right. Would you rather... Uh, go out for steaks or go out for sushi? Sushi. And not pay. And not have to pay. Sushi. Sushi. Okay. Uh, when you when you do have sushi, do you prefer like the traditional sushi, like a little bit of rice with raw fish on it, or do you prefer rolls? Well, the <laughs> traditional sushi on a bed of rice is called nigiri. And that's fish on rice. If you want sashimi, that's more traditional sushi. That's where it's just the a uh, little bit of just uh, the fish. Just the fish, exactly. And then rolls are sushi rolls. I like a ball combination of all three. Because <laughs> you can't that was just a very have, Joey you, moment. You can't just have one, right? So one, you've got to not do the nigiri. Right, the nigiri is the sucker bet. It's kind of like a salad at an all-you-can-eat buffet, right? Or a pasta. It's mm-hmm. the sucker bet. Um, so you don't want the sushi on the rice because then every bite you're eating rice. It's a waste of stomach space. So you want the nigiri. Truth. You want the nigiri and then some type of roll that you like, like a, whether it's a rainbow roll or something with eel sauce, which is delicious. And then you combine some of that nigiri, not the nigiri, the sashimi. With the roll, now you've got like a super roll. So good. Yep. I'm man, I wish I wish there was better sushi here in Chillicothe. But. Yeah, well in Phoenix, <laughs> Arizona, where you've got some primo sushi. So You do, yes, and, and they're all you can eat. So we can I mean, we walk in and people go you can hear management go, Oh gosh. <laughs> all right. Um wings or ribs? Wings. Really? Yep. I would have figured you would. And now that you've got your own smoker and all that kind of stuff, you still would choose to, to cook. So cook I, and eat I haven't smoked. And ribs. I haven't smoked a whole lot of wings or ribs on the smoker. I've done more briskets. I've done more chicken, that kind of thing on the smoker. But okay. if you go to Barrow's Pizza and you get like a sweet red chili, traditional wing, extra well done, oh, best flavor. Really? Hard to beat more than ribs. Oh, my side. Yeah, I think I'd, I'd probably have to go for ribs if it were me. But that's because I smoke some awesome ribs. If you ever come out to if you ever come out to Missouri, I'll be I'll be sure to to make that happen. This sounds like a deal. Be good. So, 
All right, and last question. This is the most burning question. I think you have. I, I think you would have most fun with this one. But uh, would you rather have a Tesla Model S or an Audi R8? You can't compare those two cars, John. God, I can, and I and I did. All right, so. All right. So <laughs> I I haven't driven a, uh, an R8, and I think the R8 super impractical because that's a two door coupe mid engine car. The Tesla is the fastest car you'll ever drive in your entire life, uh, and they're insanely fun to drive. Between the two, the Tesla is more practical, but the Audi is a better car. The more direct comparison would be an Audi RS7, which is their four-door full-size like large sedan with more of like a hatch trunk, all-wheel drive. That's more of a direct competitor against the Tesla from a capability standpoint, and you just put gas in it instead of charging a battery for an hour or so. Between those two, I would choose the Audi. Okay, but I told you to pick between the Tesla Model S and the Audi R8. Audi R8. And I was just going based on speed. Audi R8. That, Audi R8, wow. Yeah. I honestly but, thought you might have, you might have gone with the Tesla. Well, and the Tesla's great, but I went to track day a couple years ago with a friend of mine named Scott, and there was a Audi R8 that was stripped down, had this big old wing on the back. And I think that was one of the old V10s. And it just ripping around the track. Like, it's pretty ridiculous. So I do that with my R8. <laughs> well, there you go. You're, you, know, you, you heard it first. Nils would rather trash the environment than save it with the Tesla. He wants, he wants the Audi. The Teslas aren't better for the environment. <laughs> I know. That's definitely... Well, especially when it comes to the idea... Of, I'm helping the environment. Now, hold on while I plug my, my electric car into my house that burns fossil fuels to charge it. <laughs> Same problem, dude. Same problem. But, anywho, we're not here to talk about politics. We're here to talk about Nils Jonasson, which we just finished up. So, Nils, at this point, i like to give you an opportunity to have the floor so that you can thank any sponsors, uh, people in your life, you know, like your wife. Um, you know, make sure you don't forget her. Uh, and, and basically, whatever else you want to say, if there's anything on your on your mind, then, then now's your chance. The floor is yours, my friend. So I intentionally don't thank my wife because that's just implied, right? None of this would be possible without Jessica Jonasson, the love of my life, who's currently at work making the real money to pay the bills. I'm just here talking about guns on a shooting podcast. So <laughs> what do I have to complain about? But yeah, my name is Nils Jonasson. If you want to catch me on social media, Nils Jonasson on YouTube or No Skills Nils on Instagram. Uh, I post cool shooting stuff and stupid videos all the time. So check me out there. As far as people I'd like to thank or sponsors, Canic Firearms is the company and the reason that I can do what I do as much as I do. So I travel all over the place. I talk about guns, I design guns. Thank you, Canik. You guys have been a huge part of my life over the last several years, and I look forward to keeping on, keeping on. All right. Well, ladies and gentlemen, uh, that's going to wrap up another episode of Open Action with John McLean, brought to you by Arms Corps Precision. I hope you guys uh, found this one enjoyable, fun, informative, entertaining, all of, all of the above. Um, with that being said, Nils, thank you so much for taking the time to to sit down and chat with me. I really do appreciate it. Uh, you know, it's it's been it's been a pleasure knowing you as long as I have. I look forward to another another few uh, decades together of us shooting matches together and 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 doing all that kind of stuff. And um, 
with that being said, I guess we'll just go ahead and wrap this one up. So thank you guys so much for tuning in and listening. Make sure you go follow Nils, uh, Nils Jonasson for YouTube, and then No Skilled Nils for Instagram. Awesome name for Instagram, by the way, which ask him about it sometimes, and I'm sure he'll tell you where that came from. So with that being said, we're going to go ahead and sign off on this one. Thank you guys so much, and uh, I'll catch you on the next episode of Open Action with John McLean, brought to you by Arms Corps.